The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. In this episode, we take a look at whether Britain's churches are being devastated by bureaucracy and mismanagement. Plus, what's the real story behind the UK's vaccination efforts? And finally, we look at whether a stubborn union has stopped firefighters from helping with the COVID response. First up, a recent story in the Sunday Times revealed drastic cost-cutting plans from the Church of England. In this week's cover piece, Emma Thompson, a Chelmsford Church volunteer of over 20 years, says the proposals would see the disbandment of the precious parish network and the devastation of communities right across the country. To discuss, she joins me now along with the Reverend Marcus Walker, Rector of the Priory Church of St Bartholomew the Great, who also writes about the subject in this week's magazine. Emma, in your cover piece this week, you write about plans that have been revealed to disband the parish network. Can you start by telling listeners what exactly seems to be going on? Well, as I understand it, the proposal is that a huge fall in the parish giving has prompted the management of the C of E to equate that to needing to cut parish clergy. The fall in giving is seen as as meaning that we have to have fewer vicars. It sort of creates a climate of anxiety and fear, which is feels as anathema. We should be exploring other things that could be done, because I think the feeling that people have during the pandemic is that they've missed the church, they've turned to the church, they wanted it. And even though I feel this was a golden opportunity last year, which we missed, I do think that there is still scope for bringing people back to church because they missed and wanted it. There's still that attachment there. Marcus, this is something that you've also written about in this week's issue um, from your position as rector of Priory Church of St Bartholomew. What's life been like in your parish since you know the church doors closed during the pandemic? People were afraid. People still are. But, people, but at that point, back in March 2020, everybody was afraid back then. Since we reopened in June... The number of people coming through our doors, despite the fact that the footfall in the City of London is down to 13% of normal, pre-pandemic normal, we've seen an increase threefold of people coming into the church. And we know this because we have to take a record of every person who comes in. And so we know exactly how many people are coming in at the moment. There's a real thirst and a hunger. I think because people have faced death and fear and unemployment and worry and grief and all of the horrible aspects of life and loneliness and terrible mental health issues across all across all ages yes i don't know if you saw that clip online where there was a priest comforting a woman and he said the loneliness is worse than the poverty i mean in your piece you one of the points you make is that the review only applies to parish clergy rather than the managerial employers of the diocese does that seem a mistake to you if you think of the church of england as, as a pyramid it's completely illogical to chop the bottom of the pyramid, or you turn it into a column, which is unsustainable, especially when the bottom of the pyramid is actually paying for the middle. So there's no logic there. You're going to end up drying up your source of income at the bottom. Well, you've got some pretty good examples of that, haven't you? We've got in Manchester, 
just you know two months ago, they decided to advertise for seven new middle management posts. At exactly the time, they're threatening to cut the actual people on the actual ground dealing with the real people of the parishes. Chelmsford shedding 60 clergy but doubling the number of archdeacons. Yes, and they have just had a give, they've just launched a giving campaign and they said if giving doesn't improve by August, this August, in the middle of a pandemic and with a, res- a vast recession approaching, they will then cut more clergy. So it's, I mean, it seems to me that there's an ugly word for that. Effectively, they're sort of threatening to sack more people if the parishes don't pay up. This is not a good time and it's not kind. I talked to some of those clergy and they're heartbroken. You know, this is not like making a normal person redundant. They, these are people who've sometimes given up other careers, they have a vocation, they have a calling to spend their life doing this. And some of them deliberately took on poor and challenging parishes because they felt that God had sent them. And that was their calling, to go there and make a difference to people on the ground and enhance their lives. And and, and they're in tears and, you know, are finding it hard to get out of bed in the morning because they feel their whole sort of raison d'etre has been called into question. And if they feel like that, how are they supposed to minister gladly and, you know, give the good news to the the people in Chelmsford? How are those people supposed to be reaching for their wallets inspired to give and support this institution that's treating them so cruelly? I find it, I find it unkind and unchristian. I just don't think that, you know, the the people who authorise this are thinking it through. If you're leading an organisation, you must lead by example. And Marcus, I mean, you make the point towards the end of your piece that all of this effectively gives the impression of a national church that doesn't really understand the value of all of these people giving as much of their time and volunteering and, and basically propping up all these churches around the country. But what's the answer to this? If it's not cuts to the parish, what needs to change, do you think? I'd, I'd say that's almost at the core of it. The worry that what you've got is a church leadership that doesn't actually like the church that they're trying to lead and that doesn't really have a feel for the parishes, the people, the views, opinions, hopes, fears of the people who are in those parishes. The Church of England isn't me, it isn't a priest, it isn't the Archbishop of Canterbury, it isn't the Bishop of London, it isn't any of us really, it's the people who are in the parishes. What's the solution? Well, let's reconnect with them. Let's actually ask ourselves how to reconnect with the people who still love their Church of England and who feel themselves to be ignored, bypassed, humiliated, etc., by people like me and above me. We've got the most amazing calibre of people who are in the Church of England. You know, politicians like Theresa May, you've got bankers and accountants, you've got lawyers, you've got people, you know, people across vast range of professions. What I don't think is that the answers that we've been coming up with for the last 50 years of constant shrinkage, constant retreat, constant decline, constant change, constant fight, 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 fight over non-essential issues can conceivably be the way forward. And actually, we've got to have a hard, to, to use the phrase, you know, a hard reset. And Emma, what would you like to see change? Well, I agree with Marcus. I do think that the bishops are very detached from the little rural parishes like mine. People do not like a cause they can't control. If they see a need, they will respond. And that was absolutely exemplified, as I mentioned in my piece, when there were, during lockdown there was an illegal rave in a church in Chelmsford. And the, the vicar there put up a... Uh, he, he created a Just Giving page and he had to take it down after 14 days because they, because they had so much money pouring in. There was more than he needed. And people are really generous. And I think there would be much more giving if you could localise the costs. It's pointless. They're set, we're sending our money to the diocese and then they're sending some of it back again. They don't want it taken away. They want to support their local area. Emma and Marcus, thank you very much for joining. Next, 
More than 10 million vaccine doses have now been administered in the UK. So, how did we get here? In this week's magazine, our deputy political editor, Katie Balls, gives us the inside story for the first time. To tell us more, she joins me now, together with Dr Adam Ritchie, a senior project manager at the University of Oxford's Jenner Institute. Adam was part of the small team who set up the manufacturing process which made the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Katie, in this week's issue, you tell the inside story of the UK's vaccination efforts, and it begins with a scramble for PPE and Patrick Vallance's decision to take a new approach. Can you explain what happened exactly? Yes, so if we rewind to the beginning of the crisis... I think that initially there was a strong message from government, some ministers saying, look, we are entering what is being classed as a pandemic, but actually we have a brilliant pandemic plan. The UK is one of the most prepared. We do really well on these lists of preparedness and on PPE, we will have enough. And what we quickly saw, and I think took some in government by surprise, was how the pandemic just turned everything on its head. It was a different world, so to speak. And all these arrangements where we would have supply chains and China would deliver PPE and you have a contract with this country almost turned to dust because you had every country scrabbling in what was a national shortage. And at the time, there was plenty of infighting in government, tensions between Downing Street, the Department of Health, a blame game. But I think what emerged from that was this sense that they could not repeat the same approach on the next projects that were going to be of importance. And the key one, the one where Patrick Valance was playing a very leading role, was vaccines. And therefore, how do you not repeat the mistakes of the past? How do you become more self-sufficient? And how do you avoid many of those pitfalls? Adam, you've been involved in the Oxford vaccine, the story which seemed to begin in January. Can you give us a bit of insight into what was happening in Oxford during those early months? Sure. So I think probably a lot, I guess, myself and my colleagues pay a fair bit of attention, given the field we work in, to what's going on globally with emerging threats and emerging pandemics, potentially. And so some of my colleagues started very early on, as soon as the sequence for this new coronavirus came out, they started to make in the lab the very first plasmids, as we call them, the the pre-vaccine material based on that sequence using our platform that had, has been used dozens of times in, in other vaccines, from including Ebola, MERS and, and rabies. So right at the very start, back in January, when you know the headlines weren't quite as strong as they are, have been more recently, when it was just beginning in China, in Wuhan, my colleagues were starting on that. And very soon after, a lot of us started getting involved for different parts of the project, the team I'm part of, we came in to do a lot on the vaccine manufacturing process itself. Katie, I think it's probably fair to say that we've got a fair few things wrong during the pandemic in this country, but we seem to have got it right pretty much so far on vaccines. What do you think we've done right? I mean, you don't want to tempt fate here because things things are going a bit too well for our usual standards. And you can almost hear optimism is growing. I think figures in government are actually struggling now to contain their optimism or pride of how it's going, but clearly we're not at the end yet. But I think on vaccines, what I think is really interesting is even if we go to late summer, a little bit after that, I don't think there was a strong sense across government that vaccines were necessarily the way out. You had a few people who were really pushing that and who did see it as the way out. But there was lots of scepticism, both amongst some departments, particularly the Tory party saying you cannot rely on a vaccine. And if we rewind even further, I think just initially in Downing Street, the vaccines which went on to become the vaccine task force was just one of a series of work streams. And 
when you first entered this, the Prime Minister's focus was ultimately trying to end the lockdown and stop another lockdown. And I think at times during that, a vaccine was almost seen as something that was too far in the distance to be the most likely thing. I think what went right with the vaccine task force and vaccines generally are a series of factors that have all come together, clearly scientists the fact that they have managed to create that formula but I think when you start to look at how the UK government have responded better to this you look at procurement so the arrangement of contracts and I think that we go back to PPE and I think one of the key lessons one of the ones that Patrick Valance along with others including figures in number 10 including the health secretary learned and were pushing was the idea that you need to be self-reliant manufacturing if you can should be in the UK, anything where you're relying on other countries when there's a shortage of a supply is ultimately not completely reliable. And I think there were lessons learned. I also think that if you speak to various figures in government, they think one of the things that the vaccine task force did right, which obviously not, is it went outside the normal civil service team in the sense that they brought in Kate Bingham to lead it, who worked on you know funds and lots of private sector figures were brought in. There were also some brilliant civil servants, but this it was this idea of bringing people in for a short time to use their skills. And then I think the other thing from the government perspective is just funding. So the Treasury, and I think it's partly perhaps because Rishi Sunak is Chancellor, someone who has worked in you know, with investment portfolios himself, I think there is less of this sense of, we're going to look at all the contracts and work out what is the best money for the taxpayer and which one we should go through. And, and instead... Let's just actually chuck money at so many things and see what pays off, even though that is a riskier approach, because ultimately I thought the the general cost of not doing was higher than doing it. Adam, can you tell listeners a little bit about the process of making a vaccine and and, and what you need in terms of kind of physical materials and and what also limits the supply? Sure. So, I mean, I I can talk about the Oxford vaccine. Obviously, the most each vaccine is a little bit different and needs something a little bit different, but... In essence, with the Oxford vaccine, you've got cells and you need to grow up a large number of cells and they're going to make your vaccine. The bigger your number of cells, so the bigger the container you've got them in, the more they'll make. And then the stuff that comes out of that, you need to filter it and purify it. So it sounds reasonably simple, but of course, there's hundreds of steps along the way for making that happen. We spent a lot of sort of February, March, April setting up agreements before the task force even got involved with the sites that are now manufacturing for the UK, getting them the equipment they need that they're using now for making it, getting materials to them that they need to make batches and they needed at the time to get used to the process. We were very lucky in that VMIC, which the government had, had funded for a few years, that was able to help us. They, You might have heard about them. They've an institute that's designed to help the UK's preparedness for an epidemic or something like this. They didn't quite have their building built at the time. It was in the works, but they did have a team of staff and they helped us a lot, especially John Humphreys, who didn't sit physically side by side with me, but we worked side by side on on Zoom or Teams to make sure we were procuring everything we needed for all the manufacturing sites that were going to be producing the vaccine. And it was a lot of effort. There aren't just manufacturing sites sitting there empty with nothing to do and there aren't just supply chains of materials sitting there that aren't being made for a purpose so we had to go out and get those things for the Oxford vaccine people lots of companies prioritized our work gave us equipment or let us purchase equipment that had been planned for someone else and and lots of other people were fairly willing to let that 
happen considering the importance and the opportunity the Oxford vaccine offered. And Katie just mentioned a minute ago that the government didn't originally think that a vaccine was the way out of this, but that they now do. I mean, do you think that the vaccine is is the way out of all of this? I think at the moment it looks like our best chance of the way out, but I generally support the idea that you shouldn't back any one option at the expense of others. So, you know, test and trace is another very useful, just as one example. Lockdowns are an unpleasant way of trying to get things under control as well. Vaccines are a good chance. I like our vaccine, but I'm not wedded to it. I don't care which vaccine or vaccines work. It's great the Pfizer one works. It's great the Johnson one works. It's great that Sputnik works. It's great they all work because the more tools we have, the more de-risked we are and the better our chances of getting out of this. But vaccines at the moment look pretty promising. Obviously, our one is manufacturing very well here in the UK at the very least and also at the Serum Institute of India. So lots of doses coming through. And as recent data released by our team has shown in in the last few days, it's pretty effective even at one dose and looks like it has a pretty big impact on transmission. And those are things that are going to help us get out of this situation. And Katie, it sounds from your piece like there's a sort of tussle going on at the moment for people trying to take credit for the success of the British vaccine programme. Is there anyone that sort of struck you as genuinely deserving a lot of the credit whilst you're writing this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting in the sense that often when government schemes make the news, it's almost a blame game and everyone's trying to say nothing to do with me, Gov. Whereas with the vaccination programme, you're seeing lots of people want to say this is my role. To be fair, I think that when you start making calls and trying to break down who did what, it becomes clear this isn't a single person effort and it came together down to a series of actions by lots of different people. I think that... Kate Bingham clearly led a vaccine task force which did something which lots of other government projects did not manage to do which is you know almost exceed expectations and I think that if you look at some of those decisions they made so when they were whittling a list of vaccines down and Oxford had been previously agreed but you know whittling down over a hundred vaccines to a list and then working out where you're going to make your bids of the seven in total vaccines you know there's only one I think Sanofi the French vaccine which is on pause the rest you know you have three vaccines already approved by mhra you have two more of really positive phase three and you have one that the government already ordering more of because they believe it's going to be able to adapt really easily in terms of new strains so you can see that those bets paid off i think that one of the details i enjoyed discovering with some of these names that you don't normally hear in the news there is one civil servant ruth todd who normally is involved with submarine wing of government who worked on this and some of the stories so she for example I understand came up with the code names when you're discussing the various vaccines that you're going to bid for because it's sensitive information but also just in terms of logistics you had a situation where the Pfizer vaccine which was the first to inject it has to be kept at a very cold temperature and they had a situation where there is not a Pfizer plant here so it's coming from Belgium and you had a situation just before Christmas where the French ultimately stopped freight because of the new strain, the Kent strain of COVID for a while, and there is a lorry packed with Pfizer vaccines, and that has a 10-day limit. And you're working out, well, how are we going to get through this when there's 3,000 lorries stacked up? We're told that she didn't sleep for 36 hours, but I think that the various schemes they came up with so it would get here and get through does just show you how lots of these things have been going on behind the scenes that don't play out in the press, but do just show you the, the level of focus. It's not just secretaries of states or the person in charge. You know, lots of small actions are getting us there. Mm. And Adam, just finally, you've obviously been playing a very key role in all of this and you're still 
in Oxford at the moment working in the lab. What's morale like at the moment? And, and I mean, it must have been a very stressful, but also fascinating time to be working there. What's it been like? Morale is mixed to answer the question. It shifts from euphoria over seeing a shipment arrive in South Africa of a million vaccine doses from the Serum Institute of India, something you look at and you know you had a direct hand in sort of thing. And, and, you know, as a scientist, we work hard and we do a lot of good science behind the scenes, but it's rare to see your stuff having such a big impact. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of a lot of difficulties. There's There weren't hundreds of scientists sitting around waiting for something to do. We've got limited capacity, and most of the answer to trying to solve that has been working non-stop and not having much sleep or time with the family or anything like that. So lots of us are, are very tired. Lots of us are stretched. Lots of partners of ours are at home sort of holding things together with homeschooling and things like that. And it's you know, similar as it probably is for, for lots of other frontline people, the, the nurses and, and, and the doctors who are, who are dealing with the disease in the hospitals. But it's, you know, so it, it's mixed. You're very happy when things go well and, and you're very tired almost all the time. But what Kate was talking about was true. There's so many people involved and, and the task force is helping us to this day. Ian McCubbin, who, who Kate has written about before, he helped us get some of our stuff that was stuck in customs out of customs this week. We couldn't move it. It was trapped he got involved, brought in a few of these civil servants who, who have a military background, and an hour later it was on a truck heading for Oxford because we're still doing research on trying to improve the, the yield of the manufacturing process, and we needed that. I think it's interesting now how many people bring up the military and, and how useful they've been in all this scheme. I've lost count of the number of people say, well, you know, they just know how to get things done. <laughs> and clearly, yeah, been in a way camped out, you know, working with bays and other departments since PPE, and clearly don't want to let them go. <laughs> Thank you, Katie, and thank you, Adam. And finally, emergency services across the country have stepped up to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. But did the fire brigades union hold back firefighters from helping? In the magazine this week, journalist Leo McKinstry says the FBU has been self-serving and uncooperative throughout the pandemic. Leo joins us now together with Roy Wilshire, chair of the National Fire Chiefs Council, who represent fire services across the country. Leah, in this week's magazine, you write about the Fire Brigade's union's response to the pandemic. And I suppose it's fair to say you're not hugely impressed. What exactly do you think has gone wrong? Well, the COVID pandemic should have been a time for everyone in public service to show solidarity and self-sacrifice. But the Fire Brigade union has been the exact opposite. They've adopted their old mentality of I'm all right, Jack. I'm All Right Jack was the famous British film in the 1950s that parodied trade union intransigence and obstructionism. And when I hear FBU officials explaining why they won't cooperate fully with programmes like the vaccination rollout, with delivery of food parcels, with the contacting vulnerable people, all these are activities that they've been very sluggish and, and are uncooperative about. They use all the bureaucratic language of safety concerns, risk assessments, all that national risk agreements that prevent them actually doing what the public expects of them. And this was set out in very clearly, as I say in my article, in the recent HM Inspectorate of Fire and Rescue Services, which outlined all the ways that the union had been obstructive, especially on volunteering and preventing firefighters from volunteering for additional tasks beyond their stated job descriptions. 
Roy, you're chair of the National Fire Chiefs Council, which represents the UK's fire service and leads the service's national response to major incidents. What's your assessment of how firefighters have responded to the pandemic? I think you make an important point there. We need to make the separation between firefighters and other fire staff and the Fire Brigade Union and some of the things that have happened nationally. Because across the country, we we have 22 fire services helping at vaccination centres at the moment. And at least six or seven of those have firefighters actually administering the vaccination to people. You just have to look on social media, Twitter to see the work they're doing. We've got hundreds of firefighters, crewing ambulances, we're delivering to vulnerable people. There have been some hiccups nationally. There have been some fairly difficult conversations with the Fire Brigade Union nationally, but I think fire and rescue service staff and firefighters have stepped up to do their bit. Leo, did you get the impression when you were researching your piece that there were firefighters who were very keen to be helping, but that they were being prevented from doing so by the union? Well, yes, I do draw a distinction, as Roy does there, between the firefighters that are serving members and the trade union itself, which is a very difficult organisation and has blocked reform for years. And I think within the firefighters themselves, there is a distinction to draw between the whole-time firefighters, the full-time ones who are generally members of the FBU, and a lot of them uh, go along with what the union says, and the part-time retained firefighters who are singled out in the report by the HM Inspectorate for their cooperative attitude and their public-spirited work, as Roy says, on programmes like the vaccination rollout. So I think there is a distinction there. But I've always been terribly disillusioned with it. For almost 20 years, I've been writing about the fire service and the fire brigades union because my eyes were open to what was going on during the famous strike of 2003-04 when there were the last big nationwide fire service strike and the green goddesses in the British Army was called in to cover for the firefighters who were on strike. And on my local... TV station, there were endless interviews with British soldiers who were substituting for firefighters. So many of them said, this is such a boring job, we've got nothing to do. For 14 days, some of them had no call-outs and no work to do, and they couldn't believe that their image of the fire service as this busy, highly stressful job was actually just a fiction, and the, the reality was it's the only public service I can think of, the only major public service I can think of where demand is actually falling in nearly all other public services, the NHS, social care, ambulance service, the police. Demands are increasing all the time, yet the demands are falling on the fire service and it needs major reform. So it does other duties like paramedic duties, responding to emergencies. But it's the FBU has blocked all that for decades. Leo is absolutely right. The number of fires has, has dropped over the last decade by almost half. But we count that as a success story. Our prevention has been much better than any other public service. We've reduced fires. But we, we do fill those gaps. We do a lot more public safety now. If you look at the building safety crisis following Grenfell and the protection, fire protection role we're doing, we go to people's homes and do fire safety checks. So absolutely right on number of fires. But the image of firefighters sitting around and doing nothing nowadays is, is an image from when I was a firefighter in the early 80s. We, we've moved on a bit from since then. But the FBU is still refusing to embrace properly paramedic duties and emergency response duties, which other fire services in Europe do. I mean, I personally think there should be just an emergency service covering fire and ambulance. When you look at the strain on the ambulance service, it's actually got fewer 
frontline personnel and yet the demand is about 10 times higher on the ambulance service and it would be so much better if like in France where they have the sapper pompier where emergency workers cover both duties and I think that that's the road to go down but it'll never happen as long as the FBU adopts its head in the sand intransigent and attitude. Well yeah, I suppose what might seem a bit strange to listeners about this is that on the one hand what Leo is saying is that the, the union were worried about firefighters being put at risk but people will presumably think that firefighters are quite used to dealing with risk and presumably have quite a lot of protective equipment which could have perhaps been used to protect themselves during the pandemic so did they have an argument that there was a risk or was it were they just using that to sort of be obstructive yeah well of, of course there is a risk with covid and coronavirus we've seen that and we've seen that in a number of deaths but we've had perfectly good measures to deal with that we've in the fire service not had any shortage of ppe we were moving Unfortunately, moving bodies in the early days in, in phase one where firefighters will go in and help move bodies from homes. We've been driving ambulances. We've been transporting people. We've been delivering to vulnerable people. And we have perfectly good safety measures to do all that. I think you just need to look at the low absence rates in the fire and rescue service. You know, at most, we were at 8%. We're down to 3% covid related absence and that's testament both to the firefighters the fire staff but to all the safety measures we've put in place fire brigade union are right to be concerned about safety and so are we so we make sure our firefighters aren't put at undue risk we make sure our staff aren't at undue risk and we are there to serve our communities just as leo says and leo just finally what do you think firefighters should be doing I, I think in the short term they should be doing far more they should be involved in the vaccine rollout and i think the fbu should drop its obstructionist stance it's very interesting the contrast between fbu members and the other public service professionals particularly the doctors and nurses in the nhs who are rightly attract huge admiration from the public as it was reflected in the ritual clap last year for their dedication and their self-sacrifice right in the front line And I was very interested in a comment that the General Medical Council said, just looking it up the other day, it said in an instruction to professionals, in medical professionals, you must not deny treatment to patients because their medical condition puts you at risk. So all this talk about risk assessment, you know, when you're in a crisis like the pandemic we have with so many people dying and the rates of transmission so high, you can't have a total safe environment. And as you said, Lara, there is an oddness about firefighters making such a paramount priority of safety when their job is meant to involve risk in the first place. And in the longer term, as I say, I'd like to see the fire service merged with the ambulance service and have continental-style, French-style true emergency service that was far more flexible, far more responsive, and didn't have this throwback of outdated, restrictive practices. I absolutely agree we should involve be involved in the vaccination rollout and we are i've got a list here of fire services that are doing it at the moment tyne and weir cumbria hampshire buckinghamshire hertfordshire west midlands merseyside could i just the zoe bellingham the hm inspector fire and rescue services she did say that the response of the fbu and the whole time firefighters have been very disappointing and that's why they relied so much on the retained part-time firefighters far more for things like the vaccination rollout yeah, and, and I think there was some of that during the tripartite agreement you, you referenced, but there is no national agreement anymore, and that has actually freed up fire services to do more. If you look at the South 
African variant this week and the response in Surrey and Kent and Hertfordshire, firefighters were at the forefront of, of delivering those tests and knocking on doors. It was a very quick response. Yes, I just find it extraordinary, this emphasis by the Fire Brigades Union on the tripartite agreement, because it seemed to me a mechanism for just imposing their will. And it's surely the fire service managers and the fire chiefs like you should be free to to deploy their resources where they're most needed. I mean, the supermarket chiefs don't have their staff telling them what they will and won't do. So why should this apply to an emergency service in a crisis? Yes, and I don't disagree. I think the, the tripartite started out as a, a flexible framework to work within, but it became far too prescriptive. It became far too slow to respond. So we, we're actually doing more now without a national agreement than the tripartite agreement allowed. Although it did allow things to happen, we're much more responsive now. I think there's a lesson for this, is the less influence that the uh, FBU has, the better for, for the public and the better for the service. Thank you, Leo, and thank you, Roy. And that's everything this week. As ever, we've got plenty more for you to enjoy in the magazine, so please do pick up a copy. There's Jack Rivlin on the online army taking on Wall Street, Laurie Graham on the power of cold showers, and Mary Wakefield on the importance of daydreaming. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.